Well, good morning again to all of you here in the sanctuary, down in the fellowship hall, joining us in Fairfax, and for probably a lot of you who are joining us online during this holiday weekend. My name is David, and I have the great privilege of serving as one of your pastors here at the church. If you haven't figured out by now, our our senior pastor, uh, James Forsyth, is on sabbatical. Uh, We are about halfway through uh, his sabbatical, and so far... Things are going well. Um, A lot of you have asked about James and how he uh, is doing. I can report to you that he is uh, resting. He is having a good sabbatical. He's been able to uh, connect with three things that that he loves the most, with Jesus, uh, with his family, and with CrossFit uh, this summer. Uh, He uh, also uh, says that he is very motivated to get back here uh, in mid to late Uh, August. And so just continue praying for James and Rosie and their entire family that he continue to to rest during this sabbatical and to uh, come back uh, excited to join with this church family uh, again. However, we've not been on sabbatical, and so we've been continuing our sermon series. Uh, We've been uh, looking at uh, questions uh, that various people have have asked Jesus uh, in the Gospels, Uh, some of the most important questions in life, questions about uh, love, questions about Jesus, uh, questions about eternity, questions about money, questions about marriage, and so Today, we're going to look uh, at the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you don't need my answer to that question, so we're going to look at God's Word together. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open up to Mark chapter 10. Uh, If you're using one of the church Bibles, you can turn to page 846. It's a well-known story, but I'm confident that the Holy Spirit We'll use it in our lives today. So let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Mark 10, beginning in verse 17. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, 
See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray once again. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us clarity so that we would understand who you are, but also conviction so that we would have the courage to obey and to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this sermon series has been about life's most important questions. For my kids, the most important question in their life this summer and really for the last few years has been, what must we do to inherit a dog? What must we do to get a dog? For years they have pleaded with tears and promised to do anything if we would only get them a puppy. This came to a head a a few weeks ago. We were uh, at the uh, auction uh, for the Scotland mission trip with the students, and there were several items that were dog-related. And so my three young sons ran home, uh, got all of their money, pooled it together, and bid on every item related to a dog. And so a few weeks ago, we had leashes and we had dog toys. We, we had everything but the dog. Um, and my, my kids were uh, pretending to be dogs. Each one of them would wear the leash, <laughs> and, and they would walk them around the house. Finally, we caved in. We got a puppy this summer. We figured sabbatical wasn't enough to keep us busy, so we ought to get a puppy. So now we have little Riley three pounds of pure delight for my kids and pure something else for us uh, this summer. My kids knew what they wanted and they were willing to do anything to get it. What about you? What do you want? What do you want out of life and what are you willing to do to get it? Do you want success? Do you want health? Do you want power? Do you want wealth? What do you want and what are you willing to do to get it? Well, Jesus tells us that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you don't understand that, you can use the words of Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and Aaron Burr in the musical Hamilton. Let's follow the money and see where it goes. Be thankful I didn't sing that because I can't sing. Well, I I did a quick Google. If you look at where our our, our money goes, it it goes to a lot of media and entertainment. That that industry alone is more than a $700 billion market. If you look at the health and social care industry, it has a GDP value added of $1.136 trillion dollars. Another study that I read said that the anti-aging industry is expected to be over $200 billion by 2020-21. These industries suggest 
what we value and what we want. And I would submit to you that all of us, to some degree, are still chasing the fountain of youth. That's what this question is about that, that the rich young ruler asked Jesus. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a common question, even though it sounds churchy, uh, eternal life. What, what he's really asking there is, how can I be happy forever? In other words, how can I live a true, authentic and beautiful life. It's a common question to, to all of us, even if we wouldn't describe ourselves as a Christian. But it's also a basic question for, for us who, who want to know the answer to that. It's, it's a basic question for Christianity, right? What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, according to George Barna, the majority of Americans, 55% of Americans think the answer to that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, guess what it is? Good works. 55% of Americans think the answer to that question is good works. So in this text, Jesus gives us a surprising answer to this common and basic question. We're going to look at it in three headings. Uh, confrontation, explanation, and clarification. So if you have your Bibles, look down at the text with me, verses 17 through 22. That's really the confrontation. Look at verse 17. We see that as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him. Now this story is in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, uh, and Luke. And in Mark, we look down at verse 22, and it tells us that he had great possessions. And so we know that this was a rich man. Uh, in Matthew's gospel, it tells us that he was young. And in Luke's gospel, it tells us this, that this man was a ruler, likely a ruler in the local synagogue. And so that's where we get this heading, the rich young ruler, he gets a bad rap, but, but notice what he does. He runs to Jesus, and he kneels before him. Think about that just for a moment. This rich, young ruler runs up to the son of a carpenter and a rogue rabbi, and he kneels before him. It shows us something about his enthusiasm, and his humility. And at the end of verse 17, he asked Jesus a question. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's a commendable question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I, I doubt many of you were sitting at Starbucks this week Googling eternal life, <laughs> It's a commendable question that he's taking time to consider. But, but it's also very revealing at the same time because his question shows that he thinks that good works is most essential. And so look how Jesus responds in verses 18 and 19. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus challenges 
his assumption that being right with God is a matter of doing good. The rich young ruler doesn't get it. And so Jesus refers him to the Ten Commandments, at least a partial list of the Ten Commandments. And when that doesn't work, Jesus says in verse 21, he says, you lack one thing. You you see, Jesus looks at him and says, hey, you got to keep these Ten Commandments, or at least these four. He lists several specific ones. And then the rich young ruler goes, nailed it, (laughs) done that. And so Jesus presses into him because he's so self-deceived. He says in verse 21, okay, big shot, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. I love what Jesus does here, right? Think about that. If, if you're a Christian, when was the last time somebody walked up to you and said, hey, I've been noticing how you're living your life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a softball for Jesus, right? We think he's going to knock it out of the park. Here is an earnest and humble, rich young ruler who walks into the church and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus raises the bar. (laughs) He says, go and sell everything and then come follow me. What is Jesus doing here? Well, we have to remember that Jesus is the great physician. And so he looks into this young man's soul. And he saw that his real God was his possessions. That his real disease was materialism. And that it was so advanced that the only cure was amputation. The master surgeon cut into the young man's soul with this question. If you didn't have any savings accounts, any fine homes, any possessions, would God be enough? Would God be enough? You see, he was referring him back to the very first commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, the greatest commandment. And it's evident that he doesn't. He presses into him that you shall have no other gods before me. And it is obvious that this young man is placing something else before his relationship with the Lord. I don't have time to go into this, but keep this in mind. This is not a condemnation of wealth. This is not a command of poverty. But it is a question of love. Remember that sermon, that famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount, preached by Jesus in, in Matthew 6? Matthew six twenty four is when Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. He's talking about love. You, you can't love both things. And, and in Luke chapter 8, when he's talking about the parable of the sower, Jesus attributes money with the power to choke the spiritual life out of you. Because money and possessions and wealth is a place where we can find our identity, where we can find our security, and where we are finding our meaning. And it is a great rival to the Lord. So notice what the rich young ruler does in verse 22. He gets it. Because why? He's disheartened by the saying. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Give the rich young ruler some credit here. He understands 
Jesus is teaching that you cannot serve God and money, and so he chooses his wealth. He can't walk away from his possessions that provide his identity, his value, and his security. And he believes the lie. I know that Jesus says, follow him here, but I just want to be happy. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that as a pastor. From those who are believers, they'll look at me and say, I I know this is what God wants me to do. I even know this is what God's word says, but I can't give up this thing. I can't give it up. And so I'm choosing to do something else. And we believe the lie. We, we believe the lie that happiness is here and God is over there. And that's just not true. And I've seen person after person make a shipwreck of their life when they choose that one thing over pursuing and following Jesus in their life. And so this rich young ruler, he walks away from the one person who can truly give him his identity, value, and security. And we do the same. I get it. I get it. It's a difficult proposition to walk away from something for the sake of Jesus until, until we look down at verse 21a. I love this. Don't miss it. Look at the first part of verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, looking at the rich young ruler, what did he do? Was he disgusted? Was he angry? Was he repulsed? That's not what it says. That's not what my Bible says. It's not what your Bible says. It says that Jesus loved him. Jesus loved this man more than the rich young ruler loved God. And this rich young ruler could not see who was standing in front of him because the person talking to him was also a rich young ruler. The the, the person talking to him is Jesus. And certainly if he is the son of God, he is known riches beyond comparison. He's also young at this time. He's, He's in his early 30s. He's wealthy. He's young. And if he is the son of God, then he's also a ruler. He has authority over heaven and earth. And this rich young ruler, when, he, when Jesus was faced with losing everything that he loved, when he was faced with losing his treasure in the garden, the same Greek word is used of Jesus that's used of this rich young ruler. Jesus, too, was sorrowful. When he was in the garden, when he was faced with losing the things that matter most to him, a relationship with his heavenly Father and with Holy Spirit being cut apart on the cross, his soul, in Mark 14, says he was sorrowful even to death. And Jesus said, remove this cup from me. But then listen to how this rich young ruler responded. 
Yet not what I will, but what you will. This rich young ruler was willing to be separated from his first love. Jesus gave up what he valued the most in order to give us the treasure of greatest value. Point one is this. The good news of Christianity is grace. God loves us more than we love him. God loves us more than we love him. So Jesus confronted the rich young ruler with grace, but then secondly, he explains to his disciples. Look down at verses 23 through 27. Jesus then looked around, and then he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then that famous saying, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Very plainly, Jesus says, entering the kingdom of God is difficult for those who have wealth. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, there have been a lot of commentators and there have been a lot of pastors who have tried to make this um, uh, easier to, to, uh, to understand and water it down. And that's just not the case. You, you'll find commentators and pastors that'll say, well, it really wasn't a camel. There's another Greek word that's similar to camel that's really twine. And so Jesus is just talking about that it's really hard to get twine through the eye of a needle sometimes. Or sometimes you'll, you'll hear that, that, that in Jerusalem at this time, in the walls of Jerusalem, there, there were little gates. And so uh, this idea of eye of a needle is not, it was a nickname for, for a gate in the wall. And so it's difficult for a, a camel to go through this small little gate in the wall unless he took off all of his possessions and kneeled down. And then he could make his way through the, through the wall. And so it, it's not impossible, but it's just really difficult and hard. And we have to let Jesus speak here. He doesn't say it's difficult. He doesn't say it's hard. He says it's impossible. Let, let's not water this down. If, if, if Jesus were, were ministering in the south, instead of saying it's more difficult for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, he would have said there's not a snowball's chance in a hot place. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. It's impossible. <laughs> and so look at how the disciples responded in verse 26. They're amazed. They say, then who can be saved? Notice what the disciples didn't do. The disciples are blue collar, most of them, right? They're fishermen. They're tax collectors. They didn't say, you tell him, Jesus. (laughs) You tell the 1%. You tell the wealthy. It's impossible. That's not what they said. Their reaction reveals that they looked at the rich young ruler and they liked him. He was a likable guy. He was a good and a decent person. He's been fair in all of his business dealings. He's a good man. He's a religious leader. And if he can't be saved, then what hope is there for us? Their words demonstrate that the disciples in this moment, they don't understand grace. They don't understand grace. 
Because if this good person can't be saved, then what hope is there for me? Friends, this is the key teaching of this text, the Bible and Jesus, that according to Barna, 55% of us miss. It is impossible, hear me clearly, hear Jesus clearly, it is impossible for a person to save him or herself. God does not save us because of what we do, but only because of what God has done for us. God does not save us because of our goodness, but only because of the goodness that God has provided for us in Christ Jesus. The belief that we are more righteous. Ten Commandments, nailed it. More capable, just tell me what to do. This belief that we are more righteous and more capable of pleasing God by our own effort is a false teaching perpetuated by our own glory-stealing hearts. Getting into the kingdom of God is not based on goodness of man, but on the grace of God. Let me say it again. Getting into the kingdom of God is not based on the goodness of man, but the grace of God. Think about it. If we could save ourselves, then why did Jesus have to come to die? You're saying, Pastor, that's a little strong to stay. Well, I didn't say it. Galatians 2.21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness, salvation, were through the law, goodness, then Christ died for no purpose. If you could save yourself by your own goodness, then Christ died for no purpose. So what does that mean for me and you? We have to consider this. Have we repented of trusting in our own goodness as a source of our hope? John Gerstner, a pastor, once said, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. That's what Paul says is his testimony in Philippians 3, right? If, if you could be saved by goodness, my resume is better than anybody. I was born an Israelite, and not just any Israelite. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And concerning the law, faultless. Circumcised when I was supposed to be circumcised. Following God to the point of persecuting anyone else. And yet he says, I consider all of these things rubbish. Garbage. Because these Good things kept me from knowing the grace of Jesus Christ. Have we repented of our goodness? Have we turned away from anything that we love more than God? That's what repentance is. So Jesus explains that grace is the basis of the kingdom of God. And now, finally, he clarifies for Peter in verses 28 through 31. We'll move through this one quickly. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Good old Peter, right? (laughs) Peter's standing in the background, hand-waving, Pick me, pick me, pick me. I know he left you, but look at me. We've left you and followed everything. Or we've, we've left everything and followed you. What do we get? (laughs) 
And Jesus must have smiled and reassured him with perhaps some of the most encouraging words to believers. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left anything that will not receive a hundredfold now in this time with persecutions and eternal life. Jesus says you're going to receive three things. Number one, fellowship. When you're adopted by God, every Christian has a church family. If you leave your siblings and your parents and you become a follower of Jesus, your family is now bigger. And it says you should be treated with hospitality. That's what it means, house and land there. So the first thing for those who have responded to the love of Jesus and the grace of the gospel, they receive fellowship. When adopted by God, every Christian has a church family. This is your family. The second thing that you're going to receive is persecution. It's a different sermon, but it reminds us that Jesus is not teaching a prosperity theology. That as Christians, we will suffer for our faith in this lifetime. And then the third thing he promises to Peter, his disciples, and to us is eternal life. The phrase is synonymous with treasure in heaven. And it reminds us of the infinite and the secure reward that is to come. I saw this firsthand a a few years ago when um, I was on a a mission trip in a a culture that was very unfriendly to Christianity. We were doing uh, a a summer camp, and there was a 13-year-old girl there who, who met Jesus for the first time and came to faith in Christ. And as we were walking back up, uh, from, from one of the activities, she, she brought a translator with her, and she, she said she had two questions for me. And the first question was, was basically this, how do, how do I become a Christian? And, and we walked through that together. And then her second question was, should I tell my family? And that was a very difficult question to answer, and one that I didn't. I said, let's go talk to your local pastor Because she fully expected that in following Jesus in this moment, that her family would disown her. So her pastor walked through that with her. She did tell her family. She was disowned. She lost her siblings, her mother and father. And she gained a church family who adopted her and loved her and ministered to her. I went back a few years later. And I was in this local congregation, and this girl walked in with flowers in her hands and her biological family by her side. (laughs) And she wanted to share with me and say thank you with flowers, which she didn't need to do. And she wanted me to meet her family who had come to faith in Christ through the ministry of this local church. One pastor said this about this passage. When you meet the real Jesus, you'll find he wants much more from you than you ever thought, and he offers far more to you than you ever dreamed. When we understand that, we can do what Jesus says in verse 31, that many who are first will be last, and the last first. When we see the rich young ruler in this passage, There will be a great reversal of people and values in this world and in the world to come. 
I heard one pastor uh, preaching on this passage from um, Orlando, and so I I trust that this is true. Uh, He said there's an interview with Walt Disney, uh, who, who, um, uh, when he started Disney World, um, someone asked him when he knew that it was going to make it, that it was going to work, and he he said, I remember the exact moment, the exact time. I I was on a morning walk around the park, and I saw Cinderella, I saw Cinderella, the cast member dressed up as Cinderella, pick up a cigarette butt. And he knew in that moment that because they bought into what they were doing, because there was ownership, that this was going to be successful. Friends, the rich young ruler taking on human flesh, dying on the cross for our sins, It's greater than any act of Cinderella at a theme park. And when we see that, then we can live consistently with the values of Jesus. We can be last so that others can be first. When we realize how deeply we are loved, that we have an inheritance that can never spoil or fade, then we will live with freedom and joy. Jesus gave up his security, riches, and life to pay our debt We were ransomed not with gold or silver, but with the blood of Jesus. Summary, the good news of Christianity is grace. God loves us more than we love him. Second, God does not save us because of what we do, but only because of what Christ has done for us. And thirdly, God's love enables us to love him more than anything and love others more than we love ourselves. Let's go back to that original question. What must I do to get a puppy? The truth of the matter, nothing. My kids couldn't do anything to get a puppy. It could only be received as a gift. That's the context of chapter 10. Because in the previous section, Jesus said to the disciples, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Our only hope is to humble ourselves like little children. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Only when we come with nothing can we receive everything. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this text. It's challenging, it's comforting, it's encouraging. And it's clear. So, Father, please help us to respond to the gospel even now as we come to your table. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.